Amen. Amen. Good morning to all of you. Good to see you. Recently, I read an article uh, about in, in Preaching Magazine about the preaching of Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century England. Author of the article, R. Albert Muller, writes this, The popular appeal of Spurgeon's preaching could be traced in part to his unique method of preaching messages which were at once both rich in substance and clear in presentation. Spurgeon rejected the highbrow elegance of the aristocratic Victorians and preached using popular language and directness. He used illustrations from everyday life and current events rather than the literary allusions common to Victorian sermons. So this approach had an immediate impact on London, starved for relevant preaching. Not for a long time, one observer noted that a prominent preacher condescended to preach the simple gospel in plain English, free from classical quotations and overburdened rhetoric. The author says, long before Karl Barth, Spurgeon instructed his students, student preachers, to read the Bible and the newspaper side by side. Current events, he urged, illustrated timeless truths. So this morning, I want to put the Bible and the newspaper side by side for a few moments, and I want to start with the top news headlines as I was preparing this sermon for the last two weeks. As a news headline came into my phone, where I get updates all the time, I wrote them down. Here's what the newspaper has to say. Teen shot and killed in Abbotsford. This is days after similar reports out of Burnaby, Richmond, and Aldergrove. Ebola victims journey from Liberian war to fight for life in U.S. Keeping bank data from hackers. Supreme Court clears the way for gay marriages in five states. 43 missing students, a mass grave, and a suspect, Mexico's police. Mother charged after child brings over 200 bags of heroin to daycare. Three attacks on women prompt warning from the VPD. Texas Ebola patient has died. Will Syria be Obama's Vietnam? Hezbollah attack along border with Lebanon wounds two Israeli soldiers. Can Harry Potter save the world? Secretly buying access to a governor. Combat mission in Iraq passed in the House of Commons. U.S. military sends aircraft, Marines, to Ebola-torn Liberia. Another doctor dies. Confrontation in Hong Kong. Pro-democracy demonstrators attacked. Vatican signals more lenient stance on gays and divorce. Dallas nurse contracts Ebola, elevating response and anxiety. Sayreville High School football players facing criminal charges. Suspect in Slocan, B.C., shooting dead. Six Pakistan Taliban leaders swear allegiance to ISIS. 31 overdoses on potent heroin in two days at Insight. Education battle moves from the classroom to the courtroom. Pennsylvania boy, age 10, charged in the beating death of a 90-year-old woman. Saudi suspect in slaying of American had been fired for drug-related issues. An AIDS-infected pastor who committed adultery in church with members refuses to step down. Four Canadians believe dead in Nepal avalanche. 
Second medical worker in Texas tests positive for Ebola. Supreme Court allows Texas abortion clinics to stay open. City of Houston demands pastors turn over their sermons. New charges laid in Surrey sex assault of a nine-year-old girl. Enterovirus death in the lower mainland. Now the Bible. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, O Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Ezekiel 28, verses 24 through 30 to 26. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from one From the nations where they have been scattered, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who malign them. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. John 14, verses 1 through 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And I want to read some passages from Revelation, beginning in verse 7, chapter 7, verse, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and in front and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. They will never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them nor the scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I want to finish in Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord their God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. I ask you this morning, which headlines did you prefer? The comparison makes heaven look oh so appealing, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 19, Paul wrote this. He said, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
And that is those who have hope in Christ. If it is only for this life or to be more pitied than all men. What about those who have no hope in Christ at all? And there is a life after this one. Thank God. After that list. A life that we were created and designed for. You see in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon wrote that there is on earth this thing called time. And there is a time for everything. And then there's this thing Solomon wrote called eternity. And he said, He, God, has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. But this morning we're going to try. We're going to try a little bit to fathom what God has done as we take a very brief look at the question, What is heaven? I struggled with this sermon probably more than most sermons I write, which are all a struggle, but this one was a struggle because I like to put my life experiences into what I preach. I haven't been to heaven. (laughs) I haven't even seen it open. But the Word of God, which we need to rely on, gives us a pretty good description, as I've already read about what is heaven. Before we get into some points, I just want to make a differentiation between three heavens that are talked about in Scripture. There are, first of all, the first heaven, the heavens. This is the atmospheric heaven, things above us. The troposphere, if you want to be exact scientifically. Scripture talks about the birds of the air or birds of heaven. That word air is also translated heaven. The heavens gave rain, Genesis says. uh, James wrote, So the things above us, the air that we see is called the heavens. Secondly, heaven or the heaven of heavens is the celestial heaven. Many references in scripture to the heavens, the starry host, the the sun, the moon, all of those things are the heavens. And within them are things unseen. It's a spiritual realm as well. And then you've got a third heaven. Paul, in fact, uses that word. I was caught up to the third heaven. And he was given visions that he was actually uh, not allowed to share. And in fact, he was given uh, a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble (laughs) from even writing down what he saw because it was just so awesome. But others wrote it down. We read some of them. We're going to look at more this morning. This is also referred to in Scripture as heaven, the highest heaven. This is God's dwelling place, his home, his throne room. In fact, what's interesting, we're going to look at some of the scriptures this morning, but what's interesting is that Solomon's temple, and before that, the tabernacle of Moses, was designed to replicate heaven. You've got the outer court. You've got the holy place. And then you've got the holy of holies. First, second, third, heaven. The holy of holies is that place that we're going to be talking about this morning that place where God dwells. And this third heaven where God is right now, God the Father, and Jesus at his right hand, who went there after he accomplished his work on the cross on our behalf, it's actually a temporary place. It's an intermediate heaven because the Bible says that, and we read it, there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where the dwelling of God will be with men, with mankind. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that heaven and earth will pass away. That intermediate state will be no more. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the heaven we're talking about right now. But in the future, 
when Christ returns, a new heaven and a new earth will be brought here and we will reign with Christ forever here. But that new place will not be as we see it now. It will be a redeemed and a recreated one, free from all the sin and ugliness and destruction that we now see. One day the news headlines, one day the news headlines will be completely different. So what is heaven? Let's try our best. Number one, heaven is a reality. It is a real place. I almost put heaven is for real, but that would be too much like a book and a movie that's currently out there. But heaven is for real, friends. Not because a 10-year-old boy based on a near-death out-of-body experience said so, but because the Word of God says so. But I want to come back actually to those near-death experiences because it's interesting stuff. You know, we just listened to some, just some, of the many vivid descriptions uh, in Scripture about heaven. We don't have time this morning to listen to them all. I mean, as I was studying, I'm, I'm going through a few books, right? And one of them alone is like 550 pages on heaven. Like, that's just one. But if we had time to read all of these passages, we would find that heaven is described in a very, very real way, with real actual dimensions, with real material characteristics, filled with real people in a real place that is described as a dwelling, a house, a home, a country, a city, with real citizens. And these descriptions were given by real, historical, and credible people who not only walked the face of this earth, but also saw into heaven. People such as the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and the apostles Paul and Peter and John and a church leader named Stephen and, of course, Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened. It's a real place. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Acts 10 this is where after Cornelius receives a vision at precisely the same moment scripture says at noon the following day as they were on their journey precisely the same moment Cornelius was having a vision they approached the city Peter went up on the roof to pray he became hungry wanted something to eat and while the meal was being prepared he fell into a trance and he saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. I'm going to come back to that passage later. Acts chapter 7, 55 and 56, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Heaven is a real place. We know this from the Word of God, which is our first priority, our sole authority in, in all matters as the people of God. But we also have, we do, we have the evidence of near-death and out-of-body experiences which are becoming more and more frequent. And this is interesting stuff. As I was preparing this sermon, the timing was uh, not coincidental. Pastor Matt came into my office and he said, did you, did, you look at the, uh, did you look at this article in the province printed on October 7th, which actually originated uh, uh, with the Daily Telegraph? It's called, There is Evidence of Life After Death, scientists say. 
It begins this way. There may be some form of life after death, scientists believe. You know what's interesting is that I was reading a book on heaven uh, by MacArthur, John MacArthur, and he said between 80, over 80% of all people believe, maybe it's Americans, I'm not sure, but all people believe uh, in heaven. But it's very few that actually believe in God. But they want to believe there's a heaven, right? And so this, there was actually a scientific study done in 15 hospitals in the UK, US, and Austria of 2,060 cardiac arrest patients, of which 330 survived. 140 said they had experienced some kind of awareness while being resuscitated. They were clinically dead. And, and they said in this article that more would have remembered had it not been for drugs that were used in the process. Although many could not recall specific details, some themes emerged. One in five said they felt an unusual sense of peacefulness, while nearly one-third said that time had slowed down or speeded up. Some recalled seeing a bright light, a golden flash, or the sun shining. Others recounted feelings of fear, or drowning, or being dragged through deep water. In addition, 13% felt they had felt, uh, said they had felt separated from their bodies, and the same number said that their senses had been heightened. And it goes on to this conclusion. If you, ha- if you want the article, let me know. I'll forward it to you. There is some very good evidence here that these experiences are actually happening after people have medically died, said Dr. Wild. We just don't know what's going on. We're still very much in the dark about what happens when you die. And hopefully this study will help shine a scientific lens onto that. The study was published in the journal Resuscitation. Hmm. Well, what they don't know, the Bible does. And so that's what we're going to talk about here as we continue. Uh, you know what's also really interesting? Uh, I see Pastor uh, Ron with us this morning. He took the staff when I, just after I was hired to a, a pastor's luncheon, which, which uh, was just before an apologetics conference that uh, Northview and Willingdon put on together. And Dr. Gary Habermas was there. And he addressed the pastors first, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it was just before Easter. And so Habermas, in his presentation to us, said that uh, apologists, Christian apologists, are now using near-death experiences more and more uh, to, to talk about you know, the fact that Jesus Christ existed, resur- was resurrected, all of those things, because it's becoming more and more common and being scientifically documented. And so it's an open door for, for the, uh, medical professionals, but Christians everywhere, to talk about the fact that heaven is a real place. There is life after this death. Uh, after we die, there's another life. And, uh, and that we can be prepared for that. So we have to use these things, you know, to, uh, to promote the gospel. But, you know, even though heaven is a real place, ultimately our belief in it must be received by faith. <laughs> because I think it would be safe to assume most of us, like me, have never seen it. And therein lies the difficulty of, you know, not only preaching this sermon, but believing doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but we need to have faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. I want to take a few verses from there. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain, a surety and a certainty of what we do not see. 
Then it says, this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. Now we're going to talk about that later. There's so many New Testament uh, parallels here. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't see it. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own, If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a real place. Secondly, heaven is not only a reality, it is also holy, very much holy. You know, as, many, as much as, as some may have liked uh, the 1987 hit song, see, I was sort of a child of the 80s and loved that 80s rock music, <laughs> pop, pop music. But as much as some of us may have liked the, I didn't, the hit song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, I'm sorry to inform you that Belinda Carlisle was wrong. Heaven is very much a place that is separate from us, a holy place. But, you know, if we, de- if we define heaven as the place where God dwells, then people, hopefully in our lives, should get a little taste of what heaven is like because we're here, pointing to an eternal reality that will one day exist. Heaven is set apart from us, holy. It is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We see that several times in Scripture. And this, this holy, holy set up our places affirmed throughout Scripture, all the way back to Deuteronomy. It says there, Look down from heaven your holy dwelling place and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. First Kings chapter 8. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, the third heaven, cannot contain you how much less this temple that I have built, said Solomon. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And you know, long before the Apostle John gave an extremely vivid and majestic, very majestic description of God's throne room, this holy place, in Revelation 4 and 5. I don't even have time to read that one. But way before John, the prophet Isaiah whom, by the way, Stephen, as he was being, you know, stoned to death, and he, and he saw heaven open, Stephen quoted Isaiah. And Isaiah said this, long before John, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And 60 chapters later, Isaiah said this. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where, is, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord, Isaiah 66. So heaven, it's a real place. It's very much a holy place, but it's also home. Heaven is home. You know what is a, the amazing thing, the thing that amazes me about heaven is that God's very throne room, this holy place that is shaking and filled with smoke and God's awesome presence, which is replicated as the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. It is that place where only the high priest could enter one time per year. It was behind a thick veil and the smoke of incense that the priest carried was so thick that it would hinder his view of God. It was where he went to sprinkle very carefully blood on the mercy seat for the atonement and the forgiveness of the sins of the people and his own sins. It is that place where any other person at any time would immediately be struck dead by God because no one can be in the presence of God or see the holiness of God and live. It is that place that the Bible now calls our home. Isn't that amazing? We, we who are sinful, unholy people, mortals, we who have been forgiven and our sins atoned for by the blood of Jesus, our great high priest, we are now citizens of that place, not by our own righteousness, but the righteousness imputed to us by Christ. Can I get a witness to that? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's amazing. It's amazing. Save the work of Christ. We do not belong there. And the only reason we can be there is because He is there. Having returned to the right hand of the Father after He finished the great work of redeeming our souls on the cross. And now because He lives in us, we can be there. Revelation 21 assures us that now the dwelling of God is with man. And Paul wrote, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Who built the house? Who built the house? Jesus himself. You know what? You know what's interesting? Jesus was a carpenter, and he's still a carpenter. He's building. And it's going to be far better than any mansion that you've ever seen driving through the streets of Vancouver. In my Father's house are many rooms, said Jesus. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Philippians 3 verse 20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. I have to read, friends, a passage from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 5. And you know, if, if you have ever had a loved one, who uh, somebody very close to you who has passed away, um, I, I once heard somebody say uh, they, they, were, they were consoled 
and, and told, I'm sorry for your loss. And the person said, no, no, no. I didn't have a loss. I know exactly. I know exactly where my wife is. <laughs> but if you've experienced the pain of a death, a separation of a loved one, these next two passages that I'm going to read for 2 Corinthians 5 is just so comforting. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Heaven is home. It is a place to belong. It is a place of rest, of comfort, of peace, of assurance, of safety, of good food. Oh, man, that's one of the things that I am looking forward to about heaven. It's going to be a banquet. Did you notice that passage there? I think it was Ezekiel. The best of wine and the best of meat? Man, that's the kind of food I like. It's going to be there. I love going home. My mom was the best cook on the face of the earth. Love going home to eat her food. A land of pure delight. A place to long for. On the very first Sunday of this year, 2014, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie, he has a radio program, but also he's the pastor of uh, Harvest Church in California. He began uh, the year encouraging members to be heavenly-minded throughout 2014 and belong uh, and beyond. Be heavenly-minded. And one of the reasons why he's so focused on heaven and he wrote a book called As It Is in Heaven is because recently his son his son passed away. It's very painful for him. And so it turned his thoughts to heaven, as it should for all of us. You know that, you know that uh, saying, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? Uh, I think these days, it's, uh, most of us, for most of us, is we're so worldly minded that we're of no heavenly good. We, we, have to, we have to think more about heaven, friends. We do. Pastor Laurie said it's crucial to think about heaven. Your belief in the afterlife has everything to do with how you live in the before life. So he said, based on Colossians 3, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This is an awesome reminder for me and for this church, for the church. Pastor Laurie mentioned that uh, evangelist D.L. Moody was once asked, if you knew the Lord was returning tonight, how would you spend the rest of this day? And Moody responded, I wouldn't do anything different from what I do every day. And that is the right response from a Christian who's truly heavenly minded, <laughs> said Laurie. 
And he said that 61%, now this was, is Americans, but I don't think it's any different here, 61% of people said enjoyment and personal fulfillment was their purpose in life. <laughs> we live for pleasure instead of really living for God. And he talks about what heaven is like, what our citizenship there means, and why we should live for God. But I want to go to the end. Laurie says, so let's ask ourselves this year, am I glorifying God in what I do? Do I glorify God in my free time? Do I glorify God by the kinds of friends I have? Do I glorify God with my money? To be heavenly minded, we need to put Jesus first in life. From the thoughts we think, to the friends we choose, to the way we spend our time. He reminded the congregation, you are citizens of heaven. It's time to start acting like one. Number four, heaven is forever. It's forever. Paul said, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He said that heaven is not only a building from God, but also an eternal house in heaven. I want to read one more passage for you. This is the one I'm getting to here from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to be... We do, not, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, that's those who have died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. It is my prayer this morning. I, I hope you hear this. It is my prayer this morning that you would have hope. <laughs> that you would have hope. That you would be encouraged. That you would have something to look forward to. And that's, what Paul, well, that's why he wrote this. He said, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord, how long? Forever. Forever. Therefore, said Paul, encourage each other with these words. You know, because heaven is an eternal place, my last point is this. Heaven is motivation for us to stay focused on mission. Heaven is a motivation for us to stay focused on mission. You see, the key to the passage that I just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is this. Heaven clearly is only for those who are in Christ. And that means that eternity forever has Two sides, two outcomes is for those who are in Christ and those who are not. And that is a sobering thought, friends. Spurgeon said this, Some would want to preach heaven without a hell. I say that there is only a heaven because there is a hell. There is only a heaven because there is a hell. 
And when I read that quote, I thought immediately of Jesus' teaching in Luke 16 where the rich man and Lazarus both died. One went to eternal torment and the other to paradise in, by Abraham's side. And the rich man who was being tormented begged Abraham, can you send Lazarus down here to give me some, just some water because I'm hot, I'm burning up, to quench me, to quench my thirst. Abraham said, can't be done. He said, well, then can you at least send Lazarus back to my family and my friends and warn them of this place? Because I don't want anyone to experience this torment that I'm now experiencing. And Lazarus said, you know what? Or Abraham said, you know what? If they don't believe the prophets, the things that have been written down in the word of God, sending Lazarus is not going to help. Forget it. He stays here. Friends, will Jesus find us dressed and ready with lantern in hand, being about his business, the business of winning souls? Because heaven and hell are real places forever. Of Spurgeon it was said, he resisted any compromise on the substitutionary atonement, the authority and inspiration of Scripture, eternal punishment for unbelievers, original sin, and the absoluteness of Christianity. Those are the things that Spurgeon hung his hat on and would not move from. The lack of emphasis on substitutionary atonement which marked many of his contemporaries concerned Spurgeon, for he saw no genuine gospel in any preaching which was embarrassed by the scriptural witness to what God in Christ did on behalf of the redeemed. As he stated, I have always considered with Luther and Calvin that the sum and substance of the gospel lies in that word substitution, Christ standing in the stead of man. If I understand the gospel, it is this. I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason why I should not be damned is this, that Christ was punished in my stead, and there is no need to execute a sentence twice for sin. Phew. And so was Spurgeon, who said, the grandest discourse ever delivered is an ostentatious failure if the doctrine of grace, of the grace of God, be absent from it. I offer you this morning grace and hope and encouragement. I offer to you that without exception, the major teachings on heaven in the New Testament include a call to believe and repent. Hebrews 11 says that all of this must be received by faith. Peter's vision, which I said I was going to come back to, of the sheet being let down from heaven was all about the fact that the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people. All people. Whether Jew or Gentile. God wants his his heaven to be filled with all people. And I offer you the grace that this can only be ours because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for your sin and mine. Because it is only as a result of that action, the death and resurrection of Christ, that heaven can be accessed by anyone. That's grace. An opportunity to receive what we do not deserve. But you must receive it. You must receive it.
Have you this morning put your faith in Christ? Will you be in heaven? At the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter, Revelation 22, after this awesome description which I read of heaven, is an invitation which I extend to you this morning. Jesus said this, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And he says, but there are those on the outside of the gate. And he said, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Will you come this morning? Will you give your life to Jesus? Will you have Jesus become part of your life? Will you wash your robes in the blood of Christ, giving you the right to the tree of life and entrance to the gates of the eternal city, heaven? Will you have your thirst quenched? Will you come to Jesus? Will you take the free gift? just bow with me in prayer as I close the worship team is going to come up and they're going to they're going to start a song that we're going to engage in together but we just want you to reflect as the music and and as as the vocals start just sit and reflect and I want you this morning to do business with God if you if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you have not received the forgiveness of sins based on what he did for you, if you're not sure whether heaven will be part of your eternity, I beg you, I implore you, give your life to Christ today. Do it now. <laughs> for those of you who are there in that reality, spend time in quiet reflection and thanksgiving and praise for what God has done for you. And if you've given your life to Christ this morning, I want to hear about it. I want you to confess to me what you've done. I want to rejoice with you. So let's spend some time doing that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reality of heaven. Thank you that it is a holy place, but also a place that is home and eternal dwelling with you. Oh, Lord, we do not deserve this, but you've given it as a free gift. And so we bless you and we praise you. Help us to be focused, Lord, on mission, that there are those who don't know you. Open hearts, open minds, open doors for the gospel where they are not yet open for us, that we may declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, do that. We want to see a harvest of souls for the sake of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.